Yeah, this topic has sort of been a personal journey for me, I would say. Well, pretty much since I've been a Christian, frankly. But lately, God has definitely been challenging me again to consider uh, my intimacy with Him, my closeness with Him, my relationship with Him. And I basically want to share, you know, some of the things that um, basically He's been teaching me and laying on my heart for the last, last year or so. So I was thinking we could start mathematically sort of modeling kind of this is an actual model I use I'm not sure what's going on with that well maybe the projector doesn't like that either let's go to the next slide yeah anyways now um, so second joke new kids on the block anyway I know I found that when I was searching for some images anybody remembers that some of you are too young some of you are maybe too old to care but uh Actually, the, the right picture is what I want to think about is your first love should be yourself. And that's, that seems to be sort of the climate of our culture, the climate of the philosophy. That was one of the top 25 Pinterest posts, I think, of the summer so far. So that's, uh, you know, that's where a lot of people are at. And um, I think being in this culture, that's sort of where we definitely can be swayed to. It's amazing how... Uh, as Alan was saying, how crafty the evil one is in um, just getting us to sort of cloak self-focus in theological terms and biblical terms. So let's, uh, let's pray and um, let's sort of get a worldview shift as we call on God who's there and, and ask him to really speak to us this, this morning. So Lord, we just thank you for this time that we can uh, be together, look into your word, and I really just thank you for this opportunity to Uh, share some of the things that you've shared with me, uh, with each person here. We ask that you would open our eyes, that you would protect us from um, the lies that Satan would would throw at us, and that you would really just uh, expose those so that we can hear your truth and that we can be changed by it. We ask this in in your name. Amen. So, in terms of first love, that that shows up in Revelation 2, and basically Christ via John's letter to to the Ephesian church, and I want to just talk about a little bit of the context there, and then get into the text itself. I mean, it's a really interesting study, even look at sort of the progression of the Ephesian church. If you're interested in doing that, there's tons of material in the Word about that, in Acts, in Ephesians, in Timothy, and um, it's pretty interesting to see that, but, you know, this is John's purpose for writing, um, and he says... Basically, he's on Patmos, exiled, and he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard behind him a loud voice, the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, so on, so on, so on, to Laodicea. And um, so, if you go on in that, that passage, you know, he, he describes and realizes this is Christ talking to him, and uh, he falls down dead before him. It's actually pretty amazing to read, you know, the description that he gives, but it's interesting to see why Ephesus is first, you know, sort of for two reasons, I would say, is one is that if you're traveling from Patmos to any of the other churches, you're going to go through Ephesus. Um, that was typically the route. And two, as we'll see in a second, it really had a, a privilege of ministry um, that maybe the other churches didn't quite enjoy. So a lot of the, a lot of the big names passed through there. Um, and in terms of the culture... It was, a, it was a melting pot. It was a cosmopolitan city. Lots of trade went on there. And again, this was, there's lots of details that we can get into here. But um, 
this interesting quote from Heraclitus, who, was, who lived in Ephesus. He's a philosopher. And he's talking about the Temple of Artemis and saying, The morals of the temple were worse than the morals of animals, for even dogs do not mutilate each other. And he said the people there were fit to be drowned. That's pretty serious words. But they had some serious... It was kind of like Disneyland meets uh, Bourbon Street sort of idea. You know, there's trinkets they're selling, there's prostitution going on, there's like, and everything in between, it's just kind of a, a crazy place. If you also recall, um, there was a lot of magic and spiritualism when, when people were convicted, they sold, or they burned all of these, these magic books, and there was like 50,000 pieces of silver, it was counted, it was worth. So a lot of that was going on. So this is all, it's a very, you know, in some sense a dark, overtly dark city, um, and as I said, it has the privilege of ministry. Paul taught there for two years in the school of Tyrannus, and um, Timothy was left there to, uh, to deal with false teachers, heretics. At one point, uh, Achille and Priscilla may have started the church. Apollos went through there. And it's interesting if you look in the letter of Ephesians, the closing line, you know, you just you see sort of Paul's love for this church. Um, and also, if you read the end of Acts 20, you, you, uh, it's a really touching scene where the el- he's talking to the elders and they're like weeping as he's leaving. You know, they're con- continually kissing him. Like these guys had close relationships. They were committed to the Lord. They loved him. But, you know, and Paul basically says grace to you guys, you know, in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. And it's sort of important for, unfortunately, what's, what's going to be happening soon here. So, context-wise, there's a little, little uh, description, but I want to get into the text, and um, let's read it. Let's read the word here. Can you guys see on this side? Is that okay? We couldn't get the clicker to work, so I'm stuck over this side. So, did the angel of the church in Ephesus write, so this is Christ talking to John, the one who holds the seven stars. The seven stars are the angel or the messengers of the churches. Not exactly sure who that is, if it's a leader in the church or what, but that detail is maybe left for another study. In his right hand, the one, but the one is talking about Christ, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And in chapter one, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches, it says. So, this is what Christ is saying to the church. And it's interesting, right? The one who walks among them. You know, he's present, he's walking among these churches. And if you look at the description in Revelation 1, right before this, it's pretty, it's pretty serious stuff. You know, John falls down dead, as I said, and it's interesting how Christ introduces himself to each of the churches, if you, if you want to look at that in a later study. But he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. You have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But, hmm, right, yet, but I have this against you, that you have left, you have abandoned, not you lost, you have abandoned your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your landstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have... You do hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I think we could spend a good week studying this passage. There's a lot here, but I want to highlight a few of the things um, 
that deal with free love and some of the implications um, coming out of this context here. So let's keep going. So we do see um, at least two main parts. Christ is praising them, commending them for certain things, but he's also going to have some serious correction in terms of them leaving their first love. So let's look at those two parts. So let's start with the commendation first. Right? I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance. So this was a working church. Ephesus, you know, the Ephesian church was not um, the lazy, sort of just hanging out, not doing anything kind of church. They were, they were working. I mean, if, if he says, I know your deeds and your toil, toil is not, it's not a word I associate with just hanging out and sort of shooting the breeze. Their perseverance. So um, they were workers for God. And they've persevered. They Remember the context. There's extreme spiritual warfare, overt spiritual warfare going on, magic being practiced, crazy practices of pagan worship going on. And in the context of that, they have persevered. Furthermore, and I think this is where it gets, I think, more interesting, is that they have wisdom towards doctrine. Right? Not only... Um, did they not tolerate evil men, but they put them to the test. Again, showing their action. They're not just saying these people are wrong. They're putting them to the test, and they fi- they're finding them to be false. So they, they know truth. Um, they know the word. They can tell truth from lie. They, there's some maturity here. They're not just blown, being blown around by any kind of winds. right? They, they know the truth, and not only that, they actually are calling people out and saying, you're wrong. This isn't, the, this isn't the gospel. We wanna, we're not part of that, right? And I'm not sure what the deeds of the Nicolaitans are. I don't know if anybody is. There's, there's theories. Um, but it's some perversion of the gospel, most likely. These guys were alert, right? They weren't asleep at the wheel. They were alert, especially in terms of doctrine, in terms of teaching. Um, and to me, it sort of reminded me of Jude, verse 3, that they're sort of contending, in some sense, earnestly for the faith, the collection of ideas, the gospel that was handed down um, to the saints. So, let's keep going here. So that's, those are some good things, right? But he says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And that word left is abandoned. And so let's just talk about first love for a second. You know, is it, is it the principal love? Is it the, the prior love? Um, so this word first is used six times in the New Testament, proton, the Greek word, and typically it's what comes before, what's prior. However, there is a, a sort of an element of best or principal or most prominent. Luke 15 talks about the prodigal son. The father gives him the best robe. That's the same word that's used there. But um, I think the, the, the strong, the sort of the, the clearest meaning here the most prominent meaning is what comes before, the prior love. The word love is the agape, um, which I think we're familiar with. Typically used in the context of divine love, which I think also is interesting. We're not just talking about um, kind of feel-good friendship. We're talking about love that characterizes God's love towards us, self-sacrifice, um, moral preference, as we see what God prefers. So, just to, to briefly talk about this, if you put them both together, right? First love, um, to me, and what I think the text is saying is that this is effectively, you know, when you first really have this affection, this realization of what, of what Christ had done, and you really had this, this um, emotion too, 
but realization that that uh, that Christ has saved you, and uh, that you just had this ardent affection for Him. And I guess the way I think about it is affection. This is sort of my de- working definition, I guess. Affection for Christ, rooted in the truth of the gospel, or maybe initial affection for Christ, rooted in the truth of the gospel, brought about by the working of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I think those things are key. The asterisk there is also that affection should be for other other believers. Those two things go hand in hand, unfortunately, maybe for some of us. But um, my first love, I remember, so thinking about, um, it wasn't math, actually. I do like math, but I would not definitely not call it my first love. So I think most of us are in the same boat. I remember the first time I really could call God Father, and I just had a sense, Holy Spirit really confirmed that over and over again. I remember those first few weeks when I had been praying, and I actually kind of ventured into praying in public in some of the circles. I was in calling God Abba and saying Father, and I, it was like the first time I ever did that. It was really uncomfortable at first, but then, you know, as I did it, just really reinforced the fact that this is true. I, I, you know, God is my Father. This is amazing. And I just had a lot of excitement and, and uh, just passion about it because the Spirit was working in me. Um, so, this is sort of, I think... Um, Briefly coming to what I think, you know, the scripture saying first love is, uh, let's talk about a little more of the correction quickly, um, just to maybe clarify a couple things. So, abandoning your first love is sin, which I think is pretty serious, right? Because he says repent. Now, clearly we have fluctuations, right? I mean, with our spouses, with our, you know, with your family, it's like you love them, but you know, maybe you're not feeling things exactly at that moment. Does that mean you don't love them? No. But we're talking about this, you know, this descent away from affection, from relationship, from closeness. Uh, it's not just minor fluctuations. But maybe those, maybe those could be sin too. I don't know. But the, the call is not, you have to have this feeling constantly of affection for Christ, otherwise you're not loving him. That's not the point. And I think scripture is pretty clear in that. But hopefully that's, that's clear. I guess the question I was thinking is, how, do you, how, do you, how are you so ardent for the truth? How are you calling out false teachers? How are you doctrinally sort of on track, but you've, but you've missed out? How, how, do you, how do you let this happen? How do you abandon your first love? And um, Albert Muller has actually a really great sermon about this. He sort of calls it cognitive commitment to doctrine without love. He says doctrinal purity and loyalty can never be a substitute for love. So this is sort of this idea of, you know, you've grown cold because you really get passionate about the truth, and somehow um, that becomes more important, the words of the truth, proclaiming that, than the essence. You somehow have, and I think we can identify, I can identify with that as I start thinking about, you know, when I want to correct somebody, you're wrong, you know, and it's sort of, uh, oh yeah, I'm supposed to love them too. Let's, I mean, that's something to think about, okay? I'm going to keep moving though. Another interesting part is, is you have this progression in Romans um, 3. Is that clock right up there? Yes. Romans 5, excuse me. So you're holding the truth, but you've lost this relational intimacy, this essence, as I've said. So check this out. You know, he says, Paul's writing to the Romans and he's saying, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Again, the Ephesian church was persevering. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. Well, how do you miss the last step then? They're persevering, you know. They're, uh, they're moving through these trials and Christ is praising them. Well, how do they miss the last step? How did they skip over the Holy Spirit? So I guess you can, in a sense. Somehow you're, there's, you can get so fixated on, on, uh, on doctrine, perhaps, on, on truth, that you've missed the whole relationship piece. You've missed the fact that maybe um, the Holy Spirit is wanting to relate with you personally and, and, uh, and remind you who you are and that you're not just some barking dog about the truth. So, I think, let's, get, let's kind of put it to us. You know, the last, one of the last lines in Ephesians 2, or in Revelation 2, that last part of John's blurb to the church says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So I think that sort of opens it up generally to, to us even, to any church, to any believer. Clues you may have left your first love. So this is from Nancy DeMoss Wagamuth, and uh, I think it's pretty, pretty sweet. Let's go through these quickly. You can go hours or days without having more than a passing thought of him. No strong hunger for the word. Bible reading is a chore. Something to mark off your to-do list. Okay. These are sort of, you know, spending time in prayer is a burden or duty rather than a delight. Maybe these are kind of typical that you would expect. Maybe you're more concerned about physical health, well-being, and comfort than about the well-being and condition of your soul. How about this? You crave physical food while having little appetite for spiritual food. I can relate to that. Especially the coffee and little sweets. It's like, lately, I don't know. I've been like, that's, that just feels great. After a long day of listening to the kids and uh, working on, working on you know, my, my other first love, mathematics. <clears throat> listening to students whine about their grades. Wait, what? Okay, so spend more time and effort... Did I read that one? No, it didn't. Spend more time and effort on your physical appearance than on cultivating inner spiritual beauty to please Christ. I don't feel like that one applies. <laughs> I don't relate to that one as much. Maybe that's, This is a woman's website I took it from, so I don't know. <laughs> is, that, is that good? Or, <laughs> I mean, who, you know, I mean, the lines are blurred anyway these days. Who knows? <laughs> Christianity is defined more by what you do than by who you are. Obedience and service are motivated and fueled by expectations of others or a desire to impress others more than by a passion for Christ. You know, we have to ask the Lord to to reveal this. This may not be a comfortable question. You are formal and rigid and uptight about spiritual things rather than joyful and winsome. You know, do you have joy at all in, in these things or is it just, you know, marking it off, organized, you are critical and or harsh towards those who are doctrinally off base or living in sin. You are self-righteous, more concerned about the sins in other people's lives than your own. You rarely give sacrificially, whether it's monetarily or otherwise, to the Lord's work. I know the monetary thing has been convicting me. How about this one? I think this is always a tricky, tricky one. And this we're going to talk about later. This has very large implications you have broken relationships with other believers and you're basically unwilling to reconcile them. These are clues that you may have lost, your, you may have abandoned your first love. Does this resonate with anybody? I don't, we'll take questions and thoughts at the end if you don't mind. But anybody resonate with anybody here? 
Okay, let's let's sort of let's get to the positive side of, of how do we how do we address these issues? How do we how do we get back? What's the, the text saying? Well, first is re- repent. It, it's sin. Agree with God about your sin and confess it. And literally, right, repent is turn around, but the question is to what? To what? Well, I think um, the text gives a clue as well. It says, remember where, you know, from where you have fallen. And why were you in that first love situation in the first place? It's because of Christ's work. It's because of the gospel. That's the essence we have to get back to. So I want to hit, so this is kind of a, an outline for the rest of the talk. I want to hit these two concepts, um, propitiation and adoption. There's a lot more than that, but uh, those are two things that, that God has really been kind of indicating that I have to stress. And then... Um, three uh, sort of first deeds, right? He says, remember where you've fallen and do the, the deeds you did at first. And um, talk about these three things. Dig into the word, thinking about prayer in terms of relationship with God instead of just duty, instead of formalities, as well as this notion that Francis Schaeffer calls the final apologetic. And just want to stress too is that we don't want to miss the Holy Spirit in this. It's easy to get sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and I'm going to somehow generate this passion again for Christ. Well, no, that's really how it works. I think in all of these concepts, we get back into the gospel, we get back into the word, back into prayer. Frankly, it all needs to be bathed with this perspective with this kind of prayer that this desire, Holy Spirit, please show me these things. Please, please give me a passion because I, I don't have one right now. Please open my eyes and my heart, as Ephesians 1.18 says, so I can know, right, the hope of, of his calling, hope of my hope of his calling, the inheritance that he ha- you know, that he has in the saints, the power, right, that is available to us. Right? That's that same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead. Those are pretty powerful verses. And um, Romans five as well. The work of the Holy Spirit, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, effectively. That's that's why we need him. It's not our own efforts. So I want to just stress that. That's underlying all the things I'm going to be talking about uh, from now on, basically. So, <laughs> let's get into propitiation a little bit. Again, we could spend like three weeks on this, these verses here as well. There's, it's heavy and chock full of stuff. But I want to get into this notion of propitiation. This is the first condition of love when we understand who Christ is and what he has done. So let me just read these verses and let's talk about a couple of these things. So, but now, apart from the law, this is Paul writing to the Romans, um, and he's, he's getting into, you know, sort of the, the details of the gospel. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a lot. Are you tired? A little bit, probably. But let's stay, stay with me here. We're, we'll be done in about 20 minutes. Um, what does propitiation mean? Well, generally it means to appease an offended power 
with something. In the New Testament context, it's about Jesus' death as a substitute for all sinners who trust in him in terms of him satisfying the holy wrath of God against sin. So this is something, frankly, I think that's been maybe up for debate somewhat in, in the Christian world for a long time. You know, some Bibles say expiation, which is the putting away of sin, some translations. But, it does, but if you look not only at several passages that use particularly the word propitiation, but the general thrust of the New Testament as a whole, I think it's pretty hard to get away from this concept, frankly. Um, that God poured his wrath out on his son for your sin and my sin. He didn't just cancel it. What's the, what, are the, what are the sort of uh, implications of that? Well, let me ask you this. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, at the cross, mercy triumphed over justice? Has anybody heard that phrase before? Anybody read The Shack? No, The Shack's a good book, but it does say that in there. Uh, anybody read uh, Love Wins by Rob Bell? No? Uh, I didn't either, but it's <laughs> 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 probably a good thing. No, but there's this concept. It's like, you know, at the cross, what happened? Yeah, mercy, you know, mercy conquered justice. Yes. Is that the gospel? Is that biblical? Wait a second. If mercy con- conquered justice, you know, d- is God sort of turning a blind eye to my sin? Is God just anymore? This is pretty serious. I mean, it sounds great, right? It's, it's a great line. Mercy triumphed over justice. That's awesome. I want to get behind that. But, um, unfortunately, you know, if you take that to its logical conclusion, you're effectively saying, okay, so then God made sort of these provisions of where he's not really dealing with sin. So according to how you know, he's prescribed it and according to how he would judge it and according to the fact that he has holy wrath against it. So, but he said he's just, but wait a second. Now mercy's triumphed over that, so there's some provision. So I guess he's not really just, so I guess he's a liar. So I guess, wait a second, we're saying some pretty serious things about God when we have these nice phrases that sound amazing and kind of really appeal to us. God is not just merciful. He's perfectly merciful and perfectly just. Actually, he delights in mercy, and he's perfectly just. Maybe I think that's a more accurate way to say it. So if we start playing around with stressing one of those over the other, we are starting to become, I think we're getting into dangerous ground. And that's why um, I've heard it said that justice kissed mercy at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's what makes this event so spectacular. That's what makes this Christ crucifixion, this, this plan of salvation so Unbelievable, if you ask me. So amazing. God is still just because he poured his wrath out on his son. God is delights in mercy because he's made a way for me to have a relationship with him. We can't get these things wrong. Let me, let me, so there's a lot more we could talk about this, but I want to move to a couple quotes from uh, J.I. Packer, which I think are really... Um, kind of saying what I've said. Let me just read this quickly. The basic description of saving faith of Christ in the Bible is as a propitiation. That is, as that which quenched God's wrath against us by obliterating our sins from his sight. God's wrath is his righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. It shows itself in retributive justice. But Jesus Christ has shielded us from the nightmare prospect of retributive justice. Retributive. How do you say that? Is it retributive? Retributive. Retributive. That's it. Justice, by becoming our representative substitute in obedience to his Father's will and receiving the wages of our sin in our place. 
by this means justice has been done. Right? That's why God can say, back, he's just, right? That's why he can say, look, he demonstrated his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. Is that my past, is that my past sins? Nope. Those are people before Christ. Those aren't my past sins. Maybe, that's a good, it's good to take a look at this verse again. I've heard sermons saying that it's on my past sins. It's not. God's just because what did he do? He didn't wipe out, I mean, what about Abraham? What about all these people who are going to be in heaven who had faith in God? He, lo- he passed over, what about the angel of death? He passed over their sins. That's what it's saying here. Previously committed. But God dealt with those sins at some point. If he never dealt with them, he's not just. That's the point. Um, by this means, justice has been done for the sins of all that will ever be pardoned. Abraham and before and us and Pat, you know, in, in the future, were judged and punished in the person of the God, of God the Son, and is on this basis that pardon is now offered to us offenders. Redeeming love and retributive justice joined hands, so to speak, at Calvary, for there God showed himself to be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. Has the word propitiation any place in your Christianity? In the faith of the New Testament, it's central. The love of God, the taking of the manhood by the, of manhood by the Son, the meaning of the cross, Christ's heavenly intercession the way of salvation, are all to be explained in terms of it. And I think this is pretty serious. And I think it's worth thinking about and discussing amongst ourselves. A gospel without propitiation at its heart is another gospel than that which Paul preached. And the implications of this cannot be evaded. That's, a, that's quite a claim. We're talking about these things matter, right? We don't want to be preaching false gospels. We don't want to be accused of that. I think that's pretty serious. Why does that have to do with our first love? I think that reinforces the fact that the, the value of God's grace and mercy. Because he is not, a, he's not the, high, the level of sin of justice is very, 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 very high. It's perfect. There is no compromise. And yet, he's made a way for me. That should, that should spark something in me if the Holy Spirit's in me. How about adoption? God didn't just reconcile me. He didn't just redeem me. He wants to actually have a personal relationship with me. He didn't just save me from his wrath and put me on a shelf over here and say, cheers, have a good life. Right? He wants to, he wants to relate with me forever now. We're talking authentic relationship with the Trinity. So check out th- these verses. While we were children, we were held in bondage other, under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. These are tremendous verses for us. And we can't take them lightly. Because you're sons, we're not just reconciled, right? God wants a relationship with us now. He's personal. That is amazing that a holy God wants that. Sonship in Christ. This is a, this is a guaranteed future. This is, this is a pretty sweet promise. If you look in First Peter, right, he says, he's talking about how blessed we are to this, thinking about this lively hope of Christ's resurrection. Why? Because it guarantees that we have a, a future with God reserved in heaven that's undefiled, will not fade away. Um, this is something to bank on. This is something that God wants us to know. This is something that God wants us to thank Him for. This is something that is um, 
Inconceivable, right? Ephesians 2.7. Does anyone know what that says? What does God want to do in the ages to come? Show the what? The surpassing riches of His grace on us forever and ever. That, don't, that makes me uncomfortable, actually. Because I don't even I don't know. Like, why would you love me that much? That makes me really uncomfortable. I, I am. In some sense, I know when Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel, sometimes I'm ashamed of God's love because it's like super disarming. It's so different than the way I think about things. The other thing is that we have the evidence of the Spirit in us testifying of these truths. He's crying in our hearts, Abba, Father. He's, he's testifying. Do you experience that ever? Ask him if you don't. I mean, it may not be an audible voice, but it should be in line with this truth that he, when you meditate on it and think about it, it bring, he brings it alive. He's, he gives you confidence and says, yeah, this is true about you. And therefore, my love for Christ will grow. Therefore, I have a real joy because I know I have a future and I don't have to worry about myself anymore. I'm, I'm free to serve. I'm free to serve. Let's keep going. This is something I think is just, this is like John 7, I don't know, I'm super excited about this. I did a, a couple Sunday school lessons with, with uh, my, my class at Brunswick and we, I'll tell you what we did in a second. <clears throat> they, they, really, they really liked it. I liked it. It was one of my favorite Sunday school classes ever taught. But I like this verse in Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. That's something I haven't prayed in a while, but I used to. And I've been doing that more now when I get back into the Word. Father, open my eyes. Spirit, open my eyes so I can behold wonderful things. Right? John 7. So part of this means there's going to be some hard work of studying, too. That's kind of... If you're not a reader, if you don't like uh, thinking... (laughs) I don't know. I mean, there's other ways to do it, I guess. You can listen... But uh, there's hard work involved here. But there's some sweet nuggets. So this is one of them for me lately. Jesus fulfills the Feast of Booths. So do you know what the Feast of Booths was or the Feast of Tabernacles? So it's sort of this camping festival. People sort of 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, radius, give or take, would all come, descend upon the city, set up these booths, effectively these little sheds, you know, and they would camp for a week. Um... When we were living in University Heights in Cleveland, they still do this. They have their little things they set up outside. I don't think they do it quite the same way anymore, right? There's no temple in University Heights, but um, what happens? So what are, what are they celebrating? Basically, they're celebrating <clears throat> what's going on in Exodus 17 when, when God provided water out of the rock for the children of Israel who were thirsty and complaining in the desert. And it's, it's got this sort of past element celebrating God's faithfulness to, their pe- to the people in the, in the wilderness, but also has this um, you know, future-looking element, f- forward-looking element, um, where they're looking to the Messiah, because, um, again, the notion of salvation... So, scriptures like Isaiah 12 and Isaiah 55 are intimately connected with this, so there was, there's a, the forward-looking kind of element. And so what happens with this water ritual? So this is what we did... <clears throat> in the class, and I'll just go through how kind of they do it. So in the morning, so for six days, it's a seven-day feast. For six days, they go down to the pool of Siloam, okay? The priest has a, has a pitcher. He fills up water there, and they make the trek back up the hill to the temple. People are following, you know, they're chanting, dancing, 
only like this or like this, you know, not mixing. Side to side, up and down, you don't mix that, right? I guess Baptists don't mix. But what is it? I don't know. Do we, do we have a joke about our dancing in AC? No. Okay, anyways, they, they danced. They, they had a great time. They were enjoying it. And um, what they would do is they would follow the priest each day back up to the temple, and there was this big, kind of this elevated platform with a, a basin there, and the priest would, would climb up the stairs, and he would hold the pitcher and dump the water in, and uh, the, you know, the people would be chanting um, verses from Isaiah 12, like, you know, out of the, the wells of salvation, I'm drawing water, and Isaiah 55, you know, come and, come and drink, come and, come and eat, buy, buy wine and milk without price. Um, and this was a really happening, there was like boys climbing ladders to light candles, and it was a crazy kind of event. And they're celebrating, you know, effectively, this water that God had provided. And for six days they do this. And so in our Sunday school class, we, you know, like we went to the, the kitchen and we climb, I had them climb up on the counter. I tried to make sure like the doors were closed and no one would see us. And, you know, I had this water thing I was pouring and I was, you know, telling them, you know, chant and, and uh, tell me to, to put it higher. <clears throat> it was fun. But, check this out. So, oh, on the seventh day. The seventh day, um, same thing happened, but the priest got to the platform again with the water, and he walked around the platform seven times just to kind of, you know, build the anticipation. And he's holding the pitcher, he climbs up holding the pitcher, and the people are screaming, higher, higher, you know, and he's like, it's just this really intense moment. And he's about to pour it in the last seventh time, and Jesus was at this feast, right? He went late. And this is when, it seems like, he stood up and said this. And this is pretty cool, I think. Right? If you don't know about all that ritual, you don't really appreciate what Christ is saying here. Jesus says, now on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up, stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is like when the priest is at that moment, it's like dead quiet, he's pouring the water for that last time. Everyone is like, this is the climax of the feast. And probably this is when Jesus said this. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I don't know, is that, to me that's really cool. If you know those details, all of a sudden like, it's like, well this, was, this seems like kind of a throw in by Jesus, but as soon as you know those details, it's like, wow, this is, this is amazing. He was, he was effectively saying like, I'm that water that you guys are celebrating, I'm right here. Nah, Joseph's son, you know, that's not you. Who is this guy? Anyways, that makes me excited. Here's another thing that makes me excited. Come is in the present tense, right? In verse 37, come to me and drink. So it has this implication that we should keep on drinking, right? Be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Jeremiah 2.13, another interesting verse that's worth studying. Right? Jesus, or, <clears throat> Jeremiah is saying, like, or God is saying this, actually, um, I forgot. Let me think one second. Yeah. My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. What are they they doing? They've gone on their own and they're digging cisterns, broken cisterns for themselves which can hold no water. And he's like, "Why, why would you forsake the fountain of living water? Keep on drinking. And I think this is also another good point. Don't drink alone. Give it away. We don't want spiritual constipation. Right? Took that from Gary, but 
Anyways, <clears throat> don't drink alone. This is meant to be in the context of community, context of relationships with believers, right? Drink with people. Let's, get, let's, let's dig into the Word and study and, uh, and find these gems. And your excitement for Christ will grow. How about this? I think this is a pretty cool quote. I go back to this verse when I need a little, a little pick-me-up just to think, just kind of get my perspective off of myself. God's talking to Job right after um, all the nonsense with his friends and finally God shows up and he's, he's, he's saying, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? I mean, just think of the power in the, those words. Think of the fine-tuning of the universe. Think of the... Think of the information that God spoke, the mathematical laws governing the universe. Think of what's going on. The, the earth is going around the sun, really? You know? The sun's a star, by the way. Did you know that? No, it is. I know, it sounds really dumb, but it's like you think about all oh, the stars are out there. Well, there's a sun. It's like right here. That's a star, too. <clears throat> it's pretty amazing. Check this out, though. So we see it rise all the time, right? God commanded in the morning. Eh, big deal. It goes up and around, blah, 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 blah. Check out this quote from G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. Like my son Micah. I can throw him onto the bed, and he wants me to do it 50 trillion times. My back's about to break off. You know, he says, do it again. It's like, aren't you, aren't you sick of this? Nope. <laughs> And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough, this is interesting, to exalt the monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. I think this is pretty also sweet. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Let's dig into the word. And I would also say, let's talk, about, let's talk with mature believers and think about some of the books maybe they read because it's like having a conversation with a believer. Some books I would not recommend. We have to be careful what we read for sure because there's a lot of nonsense out there like Love Wins. But um, nothing personal against him, but he's just wrong. So even though I haven't read the book, maybe I shouldn't say that, right? Anyways, all right. <clears throat> I've read it. I've got enough of it. How about this? This is something lately, too. I'm going to be done very shortly here, so I'm going to go a little bit quicker through this. Learning to pray as a child, or just pray in general, and thinking about that in terms of a relationship. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Christ doesn't say, come to me, you who have your prayers organized, who know how to, you're excellent at expressing yourself, who sort of, you know, sort of self, have a, this nice self-sufficiency and um, you know, your spiritual lives are pretty in order and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He says, no, no, what's the criteria? Being weary and heavy laden, meaning you can't do it on your own, right? You're pretty weak. Maybe it's time to, to re, realign with that, that truth and stop kidding ourselves. And I will give you rest. How about this? Learning to talk with your father. How do we structure? I think this is a, uh, some of these th- points I'm taking from a book by Paul Miller. I'll show the books I'm talking about at the end. Learning to Pray, which I've been reading. It's pretty sweet. I'm not done with it yet, but it's really, really a good book. How do we structure our adult conversations? And we don't typically, unless you have some p- 
you know, some motive for talking to somebody that's pretty specific. Usually we just hang out and talk. We're not thinking constantly of like, all right, I got to say this, and then I got to say this, and then I got to say that, and then, well, what, I better say this. No, we're spending time talking. Some of these sort of definitely overlap. Jesus is an example withdrawing to pray. I, just, I find, again, it's very simple but very amazing. He's illustrating his dependent relationship on the Father. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Right? You have to abide in him. Because you can't do anything without him of spiritual value. And how about Matthew 5.3, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount starts with this perspective, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are bankrupt, right? Who realize their neediness before their father. Not blessed are those who have it all together and who, you know, have the best, are really great at making sure that people think they're doing the best spiritually. No. We're, we're, pretty, we're pretty bankrupt. We need, we need our Father. We need the Spirit. And again, I think this is really encouraging. Romans 8.26 In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray. He helps us. That should be encouraging. I think these are just some simple things of just kind of maybe, they've helped me refocus lately and say, no, I'm just, I want to spend time with the Lord and pray. And that's it. Simple. Alright, last, last one here. <clears throat> you want to stretch for two seconds? Do it. This is a powerful verse. I really suggest that you read The Mark of a Christian by Francis Schaeffer. I think our church in general, I think you individually, I know myself individually, have really gained from um, reading this book in the past and again lately. Man, he's just got some really great insights. And one of them is this, is, has to do with this verse, the final apologetic he calls it. John 17, 20-21, this is Jesus. Um, just after you know, the Last Supper, he's praying before he's going to die, that night before he dies. He's praying for his disciples, but then he also throws this in. I do not ask for, on behalf of you know, my disciples alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. That's everybody through the ages that has ever believed in God's word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Really interesting. Why is that so interesting? Well, first of all, let's talk about they. They refers to all true Christians. It doesn't have a denominational boundary, right? That really does. I don't think he was thinking about denominations. He's saying those who believe in me. That's the criteria. True Christians, true believers. Look at this. This is a quote from his book. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. We're going to talk about the oneness in a second. That's what the verse is saying, right? Christ says, why? We want unity. We want this oneness so that, what? The world may believe that you sent me, so that they would know this truth. I think this should re-motivate us to consider... A lot of things. So let's talk about some of the details. I definitely don't have time to do this justice, but um, we have a few minutes at least to talk about a couple points. This here is not organizational unity. Lots of, lots of organizational unity around. It's also not mystical unity with Christ, you know, like this, yeah, we're all one with Christ. It's not, you know, legal unity with Christ, we're all justified. It's not positional unity with Christ, we're all sons and daughters of him. Nope, he's not talking about any of that stuff. He's talking about something visible. 
Because in some sense, all these things are invisible except the organizational unity, and he's not talking about the organizational unity. What is he saying? He's saying this, this should be some visible, some mark, right? Some visible, costly agape, right? Not self-serving, but self-sacrificing love. Something visible. One of the points he makes is that we should really seek forgiveness and make right where we fail to love our brother and sister. And I'm convicted of this right now, actually. There's someone I need to talk to who's here this week that I've been putting off, unfortunately, and I need to talk. Individual level, but I think here's, here's the point that kind of hit me hardest was, do this on a group level, a church level. What about a denominational level? That's really interesting. That kind of gets the focus off of, you know, the inclusivity. I mean, you don't see like, I don't know. I mean, I don't say I have all the answers to this. I want to really provoke some thinking, though. How about this one, too? This has also convicted me big time. The, the degree of the, we're going to have differences. This is in the context of differences. We all have personalities. We all sort of see things slightly different. We have interests that are different. We have skills that are different, etc., backgrounds that are different. So we're going to have differences in the body of Christ, obviously. But here's the thing. The, the degree, the capacity, the, you know, the, sort of the magnitude of that difference, that's the, that's the degree that we should look to the Holy Spirit to show us how to love each other. So if somebody believes something totally other about the gospel than I do, to just write them off, I guess, or somebody, or maybe it's just a perspective. Say it's, you know, a reform position versus a, a non-reform position. Is that just, yeah, you know what, you're, you're dumb, you don't know the Bible. See ya. Is that is that how it should go? No. This is we, it should, so he says this should be with tears and regret, and I really like that because I just it really gets to the heart of this first love concept again. Of um, if we have this deep ardent affection for Christ, that means that is congruous with a deep ardent affection for each other who have the Spirit. They are not separate. If you, John says, if 1 John says, if you don't love your brother, you don't love God. Right? We can't separate those things. And that is so convicting to me because I've been, frankly, in my mind, I do talk about people somewhat, but in my mind I've been such a jerk to certain people. You know, and it's like, why am I doing this? Who am I? Who do I think I am? And I guess what I want to challenge us with as a, as a church, as a body, as individuals, is, is this last point, two principles that he has there, is the principle of practice of the purity of the visible church in regard to doctrine and life. So we've got to talk about what the Bible says. It's not just whatever you think. But two, the principle of the practice of an observable love and oneness among all true Christians. And he says, we need to hear more sermons, more studies, more discussions about these things. And I agree with him. I'd like to see that. Because as soon as you t- lay down interpretation of scripture, doctrine, principles, people are going to have different ideas, right? So what do we do in that? Do we just go our separate ways and keep splitting off and keep, I don't know. Or do we actually think of the, think of the concept of love um, and the notion of oneness among all true Christians? Part of our purpose here is not necessarily to be like these dogmatic, you know, PhDs that are in theology, which it's important theology, but it is that we are to be lights and people are supposed to see, we're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. So if we're missing this oneness because of these differences, the world's not seeing that. The world can say effectively, I don't think Christianity is true based on what I see. That's pretty sobering. 
Anyways, that is all I have. I'm sorry I'm over a couple minutes, but we did start a few minutes late, and those ballots kind of, right? Those pink ballots, I forgot about that on Thursday. <coughs> References. Um, I really recommend some of these books, Knowing God, Orthodoxy, A Praying Life by Miller, The Mark of a Christian. Also, Ryan Weingartner has a very good form, which I think for, for teaching that follows up on this. You can see it online if you want that. Foundational truths. I'm just sorry, Ryan, I know you're here, but it's foundational biblical stuff that we need to know. And frankly, I think there's some really key points in there about appropriating these truths as a walking believer that I, I think that you would, you would really gl- glean from. Some other books that have definitely helped me, and that is all I have. Thank you for coming. Any questions or thoughts? Yes. Sure. This will, I think this is available somewhere online, will it be? Oh, the MP3? Oh, well, I guess I should I read it then? Yeah, that's pretty hard to type out. Oh, it'll be there? Oh, M- uh, all right. Questions, thoughts? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Tom. Amen. Thank you. Thank the Lord. Honestly, yeah. It's his word. Amen. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, did everybody hear? No, no. He was saying, he was wondering how, thanks for for kind of illustrating how, you know, the Ephesian church had been doing quite a few things right, but had lost their first love. Sort of just how that mechanism has, you know, worked, how it played out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the back. Oh, Adrian. Do we sometimes think that maybe, you know, our first love even was, right? Like, reading the Bible, it's not like when you become converted, you read the Bible every night, and you're doing this, and you're studying, and then I just stop doing it. Some of us don't even know how to do those things. Yeah. Right? Or I stopped forgiving or I started forgiving for a little time and then I don't do it anymore. I think some of these core foundational teachings we don't even practice at all during our whole lifespan or even know how that looks like. And so we sometimes don't even know what the first love is. We have an idea or we think we know, but sometimes we don't really dig deep enough down to know what I'm even missing. Yeah. If, you, if you've tasted that love, you're never going to leave it. Maybe we didn't even taste it. Hmm. Because you wouldn't leave it if you tasted it. Thanks. Other? That's a good point. Okay, yeah. You're free to go.